Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. This morning, the White House and Congress are staring down a deadline to keep the government running. Also on the line, a looming October default if lawmakers don't raise the debt ceiling. And there's also the matter of an infrastructure vote today. It'll be a busy one in Washington. The question is, how will this all play out? Plus, the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol issues a slew of new subpoenas. The question is, what do lawmakers hope to learn about the events leading up to their insurrection? And a judge in Los Angeles rules the father of Britney Spears should be suspended as her conservator. The pop star is now one step closer to total freedom. But new allegations have us asking this question. Was she being recorded without her knowledge? It's way too early for this. Good morning and welcome to Way Too Early, the show that's still celebrating National Coffee Day and is going to need a lot of it today. I'm John Lemire. On this Thursday, September 30th, it's going to be a busy one. Let's start with the news. Capitol Hill is going to be consumed with a series of consequential events today. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced last night that Democrats have reached a deal with Republicans to avoid a government shutdown. A vote will take place later this morning on a stopgap funding bill that will keep the government open through early December. The stopgap bill does not include a debt limit increase, however. The House is expected to take up that measure once it's been passed by the Senate. Meanwhile, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi told reporters last night that her plan is still to bring the bipartisan infrastructure bill to the floor for a vote today, despite threats from progressives to sink it unless there's a second, far larger package containing their spending priorities. Is there any chance that you pull the bill tomorrow? The plan is to the bill Are you worried that you may not have the votes? Senator Joe Manchin, yep, him again, is calling out his own party in a fiery statement making waves on Capitol Hill. The moderate from West Virginia is, seems to be closing the door on any hope that he will help Democrats pass the reconciliation bill, citing the current cost of the proposal. It reads in part, what I have made clear to the president and Democratic leaders is that spending trillions more on new and expanded government programs when we can't even pay for the essential social programs like Social Security and Medicare, as the definition of fiscal insanity. Manchin doubled down on his stance while speaking with reporters shortly after that statement was released. In your statement, you mentioned trillions of dollars in spending. And one of the pushbacks from progressives and from the president has been that this would be zero dollars in spending because it would be paid for. What's your response to that reasoning? We're looking at everything. We all agree on doing tax reform. Let's do tax reform. Progressives are pushing back, calling out Senator Manchin's statement as unhelpful and renewing their stance that today's infrastructure vote will not pass without a deal on reconciliation. He needs to either give us an offer or this whole thing is not going to happen. I can tell you that his statement has just probably created at least a bunch more votes on the House floor against a bipartisan bill. I'm not quite sure what's going to happen tomorrow. My, My understanding from friends in the House is that bill will not pass. 
And at the end of the day, you got 95% of House members Democratic in the Democratic caucus, 95% of the uh, Senate Democratic caucus, the American people, the President of the United States want to pass this legislation. And if the infrastructure bill does not go forward, what we now need to do is to make sure that we come forward with a strong reconciliation bill so that both important pieces of legislation can pass. Senate Majority Whip Dick Durbin offered this message as a rebuttal to Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. Now it's time, I would say, for both senators, make your mark and close the deal. What is it that you want? What is your final goal? We can't delay these things. Simply delaying them is just inviting uh, a bad result, to be honest with you. You know, we are one heartbeat away from losing the majority in the United States Senate. This back and forth comes along with my new reporting about the growing frustration among the president's closest allies, including advocacy groups that say he's not doing enough to sell the package, though there's a sense that the bill is too big to fail. There's too much at stake for it to fail, for it to go down and defeat. There's also been a struggle explaining what's in it, because if you can't agree on a top line number, it's not clear what programs are in the bill and therefore you can't sell those programs. There's also been complaints about a lack of outreach from the White House, including from some members of the Congress. We heard from Representative Debbie Dingell on this show yesterday. Perhaps to counter that, the president last night attended the congressional baseball game, making an appearance as House members and from both Republicans and Democrats played their annual charity game at Nationals Park here in Washington. He visited with both sides, Democrats first, then the Republicans, received a mix of cheers and boos. You might imagine which side booed, which side cheered. And he handed out ice cream bars, ice cream bars with the packaging that included the presidential seal. Will that be enough to get a deal today? We shall see. All this as the House passed another bill to extend the debt ceiling. The measure passed by a vote of 219 to 212. The legislation would suspend the debt limit until December 16th of next year. Two Democrats voted against the measure, Congressman Kurt Schrader of Oregon and Jared Golden of Maine. One Republican voted for it, Congressman Adam Kinzinger of Illinois. The measure is expected to fail in the Senate. The House had already passed a joint debt ceiling and government funding bill that was killed by Republicans in the Senate earlier this week. Joining us now, co-founder of Punchbowl News, John Bresnahan, who probably hasn't slept in a month. John, thank you so much for being here. Uh, it is going to be an extraordinary busy day. Uh, let's start with the debt ceiling, though, as we're going to tick through some of this. It now heads to the Senate, where it's expected to fail. What needs to happen to get the Senate on board and to avoid a default? Yeah, that's a huge question, and that's that. so far the Democrats haven't figured out an answer for that, uh, or they haven't admitted an answer. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has been saying for months that Republicans are not going to vote for a debt limit increase. They're just not going to support it. If Democrats want to do it, they can do it themselves. And there's a procedure can do it. They can do a reconciliation bill that's just about the debt limit, and they can pass it themselves. It would take a couple of weeks. It would expose Democrats, vulnerable Senate Democrats, to some tough votes. But they can do it. And he's been urging them. He's been demanding that they do it. But so far, Democrats refuse to uh, you know, do this. They say, look, Republicans were voted for these programs, too. There are trillions of dollars in debt that were incurred under uh, President Trump, former President Trump. And the Republicans have a responsibility as, as leaders of the country to vote for this. So, so far, we've got this standoff. They're kind of staring at each other. 
And as your excellent uh, uh, preview showed, I mean, the debt limit, we're going to reach the debt limit on October 18th, which is only 19 days away, and we haven't resolved anything on this issue. Now, a dangerous game of chicken, uh, to be sure. And I'm knocking on some wood here that it seems like that the government is going to stay open. But the fate of the Biden agenda seems far less certain. So let's talk about that, that bipartisan infrastructure bill. Uh, Does House Speaker Pelosi have the votes needed today? No, she doesn't have them. Not right now. Not unless there was some kind of miracle overnight. I mean, I was talking to members until, you know, probably midnight last night. Some of them coming in. You showed the highlights for the baseball game. Some of them were calling me from the game talking about, you know, we, we don't have these votes. And that mansion statement was really kind of a fascinating statement that he put out. Uh, you talked about the fiscal insanity line. There was another part in there where he talked about, you know, great nations don't spend themselves into into fatal problems. And he's like, we've got to fix this. So the divide in the whole Democratic Party between moderates and progressives is signified by, you know, Manchin on one side, Bernie Sanders on the other side. And then you have Joe Biden, who ran as a moderate, has ran as a problem solver, guy who can get things done. He's the one who's supposed to resolve these issues. And as your excellent story pointed out, there's a lot of Democrats on the Hill who are complaining the president is not doing enough to get in there and solve this. Yeah, it was extraordinary moments last night where you saw Speaker Pelosi work the phones from the dugout of the game, uh, seemingly trying to whip some some votes. Uh, John, one more uh, just sort of quick one. If this does go down in defeat and there are there's some talk, the president might make the trip to Capitol Hill today as a last ditch effort no. to rally support. But if it goes down in defeat, what happens next? Like, how, what's the timeline here over the next? Is it, is it do we vote again like next week? How's this work? There's some talk the president might go home to Delaware this weekend, which Seems like optics they'd want to avoid, perhaps, if things go down and his legislation is in jeopardy. How do the next few days, weeks play out? Yeah, that's a, that's an open for a lot of discussion right now. It's a, we were wrestling with the same issue. Um, I don't know if Pelosi puts this on the floor to lose this infrastructure bill. Um, it's a trillion dollar bill. Um, you know, it, it, it's never a good thing to lose votes. And Nancy Pelosi is the best vote counter of my time on Capitol Hill, my quarter century in Capitol Hill, and she knows she's going to lose. It's a bad shape. She can unilaterally postpone this vote. That may be better than losing, but losing has its own lessons. Here's the thing. As you said, there's the infrastructure bill, which has already passed the Senate and, and has a lot of bipartisan support. And then there's the reconciliation bill, which is only Democrats. And they're intertwined. The leadership purposely linked them together. Now, the problem is the leadership purposely linked them together. So if they vote, one goes down, the other's in danger. They're not they're not close to a deal on this reconciliation package. It's social spending. As Manchin said, they're, they're weeks, if not months away. And the infrastructure bill is probably going to have to wait to pass for some period of time. I don't, I don't see them re-voting it. If we were to lose, I don't see them re-voting it right way. I think she's going to have to take some time in the, in the president and the White House are going to have to take some time to work this stuff out. They're going to have to knock some heads together and either come to a deal or not. There's one thing that we, the Democrats learned from 2010, that delay is fatal. Obamacare, they dragged Obamacare into the, the fight over that until April of 2010, and they lost their majority that November. So there's a lot of Democrats who worry that you know they're seeing a repeat of this once again. John Bresnahan of Punchbowl News. That was terrific stuff. We really appreciate it. Good luck to you today, but not your Yankees. Still ahead, another urgent warning from the CDC about pregnant women getting vaccinated against coronavirus. Plus, how YouTube is cracking down on misinformation about vaccines. Those stories and much more when we come right back. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free. Shopify.com slash podcast free. Former President Donald Trump is facing 91 indictment charges, yet he remains the Republican frontrunner. On MSNBC's podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump, veteran prosecutors Andrew Weissman and Mary McCord break down the biggest legal developments and how they could alter the election. Never had a president who engaged in this kind of conduct who's running for office. He is using the criminal cases for his own campaigning. Search for Prosecuting Donald Trump wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Tuesday. Pop star Britney Spears is finally freed from her father's control over her life and finances, as a Los Angeles judge ruled yesterday to suspend Jamie Spears from his daughter's conservatorship. NBC News correspondent Eric McLaughlin has the details. For the first time in more than a decade, Britney Spears is free of her father. A staggering reversal of past court decisions upholding Jamie Spears' role within the conservatorship. A legal arrangement controlling her life and her $60 million fortune now unraveling in a matter of months. Following a public campaign to free her and a string of documentaries loaded with explosive allegations, including one by the New York Times released over the weekend detailing how Jamie Spears and his team surveilled Britney for years, even monitoring her conversations with lawyers. Her own phone and her own private conversations were used so often to control her. Britney's attorney reacted with a statement calling the allegations an unconscionable and disgraceful violation of her privacy rights. Jamie Spears claiming he's done nothing wrong. His lawyer writing in part, all of his actions were well within the parameters of the authority conferred on him by the court, adding Jamie loves Britney unwaveringly and wants only the best for her. Streaming giant Netflix recently released Britney versus Spears. I've represented dozens of conservatives in court. Not one of them has ever had a job. But Brittany was working during the conservatorship, raising questions as to why it's lasted this long. Our thanks to NBC's Aaron McLaughlin for that report. Another hearing to review the suspension and a petition to end the conservatorship is set for November. Brittany's lawyer says he will be looking into communications between Jamie Spears and his attorney for any information regarding the allegations that Brittany Spears was recorded without her knowledge. Now to the latest on the battle against the coronavirus. The CDC issued its strongest guidance to date, urging pregnant women to get the COVID-19 vaccine as soon as possible. According to the agency, the virus poses a severe risk during pregnancy. The push also extends to women trying to become pregnant, as well as those who have recently given birth or who may be breastfeeding. So far, more than a quarter million cases of COVID in pregnant women have been reported, and of those, 22,000 were hospitalized. The CDC says more than 160 expectant mothers have died from the virus, with 22 of those deaths in August alone. Less than a third of pregnant women have been vaccinated, the agency says. Frontline healthcare workers, once hailed as heroes at the start of the pandemic, are now facing threats and violence over COVID safety protocols. The Associated Press reports a medical center in Missouri started giving panic buttons to 400 nurses and staff, panic buttons, after assaults per year tripled. Meanwhile, in Idaho, nurses said they are scared to go to the grocery store unless they have first changed out of their scrubs. 
The AP reports doctors and nurses at Coeur d'Alene Hospital have been accused of killing patients by grieving family members who don't believe COVID-19 is real, said a hospital spokeswoman. Others have been the subject of hurtful rumors spread by people angry about the pandemic. Meanwhile, in an effort to curb misinformation, YouTube says it will ban accounts that spread false claims against vaccines. Under the new policies, the video sharing platform will remove any videos claiming that any approved vaccine is dangerous or causes chronic health side effects. The crackdown covers general statements about vaccines and is not limited to only those for COVID-19. Still ahead, a first glimpse at some of the COVID-19 protocols that will be in place for the 2022 Winter Olympics, just a few months away. Plus, one one MLB player will most likely miss the playoffs after celebrating too hard. We'll explain next sports. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Former U.S. Olympic swimmer Cleet Keller has pleaded guilty to a charge stemming from the January 6th Capitol riot. During a brief appearance in federal court yesterday, Keller pleaded guilty to a single charge of obstruction in official proceeding, a felony with an estimated sentencing range of 21 to 27 months. In return, the government dropped one other felony charge and five misdemeanor counts. Keller, a three-time Olympian who won five medals, including two golds, uh, the six-foot-six-inch Olympian, was recognized in photos and videos taken inside the Capitol Rotunda on January 6th. He was also wearing a U.S. Olympic team jacket. Meanwhile, the International Olympic Committee has announced coronavirus restrictions for the upcoming Winter Games in Beijing. While organizers have not imposed a vaccine mandate, at least not yet, it will be the second straight Olympics during the pandemic where families of athletes cannot visit the host country to watch the events. No tickets will be sold to anyone living outside China. There will be a 21-day quarantine requirement for non-fully vaccinated athletes, officials, and workers at the Games, and there will be daily testing for vaccinated people. Turning now to Major League Baseball's wild push to the playoffs as we enter the final days of the regular season. We begin just up the road in Baltimore. The Red Sox gain some ground and finally in the American League wildcard chase, breaking a four-game skid with last night's 6-0 win over the Orioles. The Red Sox move to within one game of the Yankees, who are still in control of the top AL wildcard spot despite a dramatic 6-5 loss to the Blue Jays last night. Meanwhile, the Mariners, when you pair that with the Red Sox win, ended Oakland's playoff hopes last night with a 4-2 win over the A's. Seattle remains a half game behind Boston for the second wild card spot. Yankees up by Red Sox by one. Mariners half game behind Boston. Blue Jays one behind Boston. It is going to be a great final four days. And by great, I mean agonizing. In the race for the NL West, the Dodgers hit four home runs in the eighth inning to rally past the Padres 11-9 last night. L.A. remains two games behind San Francisco which beat Arizona 1-0 for its 104th win of the year, breaking a tie with the 1962 and 1993 clubs for the most wins in a single season since the franchise moved west in 1958. Those Giants are something, 104 wins. The milestone victory puts the Giants' magic number to win the division down to three, with indeed just four games remaining. 
and in Milwaukee. The Cardinals clinched the second NL wildcard spot on Tuesday with their 17th straight win, but St. Louis could not extend its remarkable streak last night, finally falling to the Brewers 4-0. But Milwaukee lost something far greater after clinching the National League Central Crown last Sunday. Brewers reliever Devin Williams, who's terrific, he fractured his throwing hand when he punched a wall. Listen to this. Devin Williams fractured his throwing hand when he punched a wall after his team celebrated its title, likely knocking him out for the entire postseason. Williams admitted to reporters this. After our celebration, I went out to have a few drinks. On my way home, I was a little frustrated and upset, and I punched a wall. That's how it happened. He was the 2020 National League Rookie of the Year. The injury likely will require surgery, but the team's president said there is a, quote, outside chance Williams could be available for the World Series if the Brewers get that far. This show has a few rules. One of them is, if you're going to have a few drinks and punch a wall in frustration, do it with your non-pitching hand. Still ahead, Joint Chiefs Chairman Mark Milley issues a new warning about the possibility of Al-Qaeda making a resurgence. Plus, the House Committee investigating the January 6th Capitol attack ramps up its probe of that insurrection. But before we go to break on this busy day, we want to know, why are you awake? Email your reasons to way too early at msnbc.com or tweet me at John Lemire using the hashtag way too early. We'll read our favorite answers later in the show. Be right back. Welcome back to Way Too Early. It's coming up on 5.30 on the East Coast, 2.30 out West. I'm Jonathan Lemire. We begin this half hour with striking new testimony by America's top military officer that the U.S. exit from Afghanistan has opened the door to a resurgence of ISIS and al-Qaeda terrorists. NBC News national security and military affairs correspondent Courtney Kuby has all the details. Jonathan, another surprising day of testimony from some of the nation's top military leaders. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs General Mark Milley warning of the possible accelerated threat from al-Qaeda now that the U.S. military has left Afghanistan. The nation's top military brass with a stunning warning on the growing terror threat following the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. It's a real possibility uh, in the not-too-distant future, 6, 12, 18, 24, 36 months, that kind of time frame, for reconstitution of al-Qaeda or ISIS. That, as for a second straight day, Joint Chiefs Chairman General Mark Milley, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, and CENTCOM Commander General Frank McKenzie were grilled over the chaotic exit, leaving Americans and Afghan allies behind now in danger of Taliban violence. Frankly, they're being slaughtered right now as we speak with our weapons, with our damn equipment. Our allies are being slaughtered. Milley and McKenzie contradicted President Biden after the president claimed none of his military advisors had recommended 2,500 troops stay in Afghanistan to avoid a Taliban takeover. No, no one said that to me that I can recall. I recommended that we maintain 2,500 troops in Afghanistan. Austin was pressed on it today. What did the president know? Did he forget what was told to him, or is he not being truthful? Which I view is? that as an inappropriate question, and I, I won't. Well, you may, but the American people don't. Milley was challenged about his phone call during the Trump administration with a Chinese general who he reportedly told, if we're going to attack, I'm going to call you ahead of time. I think you articulating that, that you would tell him, you would give him a call, I think is worthy of your resignation. I would never tip off any enemy to any kind of surprise thing that we were going to do. Congresswoman Liz Cheney came to his defense. For any American to question your loyalty to our nation is despicable. I want to apologize 
for those members of this committee who've done so. And what was General Milley's response when asked whether he would resign? I serve at the pleasure of the president. Jonathan. NBC's Courtney Kuby, thank you. We really appreciate it. The January 6th Select Committee yesterday issued subpoenas for records and depositions to 11 people tied to the events and rallies leading up to the Capitol insurrection. The subpoenas went out to a few tied to Donald Trump's inner circle and several members of the group Women for America First, which organized the rally on the Ellipse, where then-President Trump spoke. Committee member Zoe Lockford of California offered these details. The subpoenas uh, that were just issued are really directed at the organizers of the rally, uh, people who helped fund it, people who sought the permits. Um, they were campaign people. And we need to understand what was afoot here. From the very beginning, we've needed to, to find out who funded it, who planned it. We need to find out everything about how that happened. And this is a step to do that. Among those on the witness list, former spokeswoman for the 2016 Trump campaign, Katrina Pearson, and a niece of former acting White House chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney. Joining us now with more on this, congressional reporter for Politico, Nicholas Wu. Nicholas, good morning. Thank you so much for being here uh, in studio. Um, let's start with uh, the events, that, that those subpoenas. Uh, the, the, the one name that's on the list of folks who have been subpoenaed that sort of the American public might know is that Katrina Pearson. She had a visible role in 2016, slightly less center stage on the reelect campaign, but still very much involved with the president's reelection efforts. What can you tell us about what the committee is looking into about her? Well, what the committee is looking for here is, is really escalating its investigation into President Donald Trump's inner circle uh, by subpoenaing people like Katrina Pearson, someone who would probably be a hostile witness to the committee and would not show up voluntarily. And what they're looking at here are these uh, series of reported meetings with President Trump leading up to the events of the rally, uh, where committee investigators think that they might have discussed um, you know, some of the things going on there and, and, and are really trying to peel back a lot of details of what exactly the president knew, what was going to happen at these things. And so in doing so, yes, they're looking at people like Katrina Pearson and, and trying to uh, subpoena lots of documents related to all that planning as well. So you also you report today that committee chair Benny Thompson wants to be done by the spring. If that's the case, what does that timeline look at? What are the steps that lie between now and then? Well, we're already seeing them ramp things up a lot now. I mean, in, in just the next few weeks, we're going to see a lot of these deadlines for the committee come due. Uh, next week, we will still see the, uh, the very first documents from the first tranche of subpoenas um, come due. Two weeks from now, we'll see the uh, um, potential depositions from that first round of, of uh, subpoenas with people like Steve Bannon and Mark Meadows potentially mm -hmm. showing up um, and the documents from this round. And then three weeks from now, we'll have uh, potential depositions from this round of subpoenas. So, I mean, they're moving really, really fast. And uh, in, in theory, by the spring, they might be able to piece together some kind of report. We're likely to see public hearings before then. And they've pledged to be as transparent as possible in doing so. So what is the end game on this? Like, I think the American people are still just not quite sure what Congress is trying to do here. They know that bipartisan commission was scuttled by Republicans in the Senate. We've got the select committee instead. Like, what is the final result? Will there be consequences? Well, there's only so many consequences that a panel like this can levy. They can't, you know, levy uh, criminal charges or anything like that. But what they can do is put a report out in front of the American people to show, you know, some sort of accounting of what happened, what people knew, and, and how everything unfolded. Is in theory, some kind of, uh, of, of just full accounting of what actually happened uh, leading up to all of that. 
So we've been talking quite a bit uh, that today is going to be perhaps one of the most consequential days on Capitol Hill in quite some time, certainly for the Biden presidency. We saw last night the president went to the congressional baseball game. I was part of the presidential pool. I know you were there as well, seeing him working the phones and shaking hands and handing out ice cream bars, uh, trying to get uh, perhaps win some more votes for his agenda. How does today play out? Just kind of walk us through. And I know there's a lot of different scenarios, but give us a sense as to how today will play out in the building just down the road. Well, there, there's a whole lot that we, we know about where people stand, and there's a whole lot that we don't know about how it's all going to unfold. I mean, like you said at last night's game, we saw President Biden, uh, you know, trying to glad hand folks. We saw Speaker Pelosi in the stands in, at the game, you know, really working the phones. And, you know, if, any, if only any of, any of us were actually a lip reader. <laughs> um, and, and so today, uh, consideration of the infrastructure plan, the signature element of Biden's agenda is on the calendar for the House. But what we know right now is that Speaker Pelosi just doesn't have the votes to pass it. Uh, progressives and you know, other Democrats in the House, too, are really getting frustrated that they haven't nailed down any sort of commitments on their bigger three and a half trillion dollar social spending plan. And as a result, they are willing to tank the infrastructure plan um, if, if they don't get any commitments on that. And so Speaker Pelosi has pretty much never lost a vote on the House floor. And, you know, what we're thinking is that uh, it, it, rather than um, put something on the floor that she'll lose, Democrats might just pull the bill entirely and punt it till later. Extraordinary. There may be some real drama today, and it's all Democrats. Nicholas Wu Politico, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Still ahead, an exclusive look at the start of a totally different chapter for former Daily Show host John Stewart. Way too early. Back in just a minute. Time now for something totally different, and in this case, something totally amazing. A man in Florida is going viral for his unconventional method of removing one very unwelcome alligator. Eugene Bozzi acted quickly when he spotted a six-foot gator in his neighborhood, coaxing the reptile into a trash can before snapping the lid shut. Look at the tail on that thing. He held the lid with one hand, and then the military veteran pushed the can down to a retention pond. He then tipped the can over, and bolted back up the hill as the gator slowly slunk away. Bozzi, who recently moved to Florida, told a local NBC affiliate that he didn't know this proper procedure, so he, quote, did it my way. He is a hero. The whole footage is worth finding online. It is viral for a reason. Extraordinary. Meanwhile, for years, he made us laugh on late night TV. But now a new act for Jon Stewart, something a bit more serious. He talked about it exclusively with NBC's Savannah Guthrie. After six years off the air... This is what I look like now. He's back with The Problem with Jon Stewart on Apple TV+, Plus, airing every other week. Each episode takes a deep dive into one problem facing the country. Was there any part of you that decided to come back to TV because of anything that's happened in the last five years where you felt like, I wish I had a show right now, because if I did, I would say this. Not really. I get to get things off my chest all the time. I have children. I think there's a sense sometimes that when you're not on television, you stop existing because that's how people sort of see you. I experienced it, it all in all of its glory and all of its uh, trauma and was expressing myself pretty consistently throughout, just not on television. I read you felt like being away from that daily grind. You said that life got richer and more colorful. 
And I liked that. It feels like one of those videos where the guy puts on the glasses for the first time and sees colors. It's like, (laughs) I had no idea that all this was going on. For the first few months after leaving the show, I was a little Forrest Gumpy, just out in the world like, huh, what? You don't need to swipe the card. You just hold it up. And suddenly the groceries are yours. Impossible. Even to the point of just being able to pick the kids up from school and driving them home and listen to the conversation in the back. And I think that informed how I went back to doing another television show. I believe they refer to it as balance. I was just about to say, Jon Stewart, sounds like you have it all. Uh, what? I- Ding! <laughs> I was looking for a good little ending. How do you like that as an ending? It's, it's nice. That should be good. The Problem with Jon Stewart airs weekly on Apple TV+. Still ahead, facing criticism over the impact of its social media platforms on teens, Facebook will answer lawmakers on Capitol Hill today because there's not enough going on. And as we go to break, a look at this date in history. 59 years ago, James Meredith, a black student, was escorted by federal marshals to the University of Mississippi campus to enroll in classes. Meredith's presence sparked rioting that claimed two lives. Let us preserve both the law and the peace. And then healing those wounds that are within, we can turn to the greater crises that are without and stand united as one people in our pledge to man's freedom. Thank you and good night. Facebook's global head of safety will testify before Congress later today. The hearing comes after the Wall Street Journal published a series of remarkable reports that found that Instagram had a negative impact on the mental health of many teenage girls. According to prepared testimony seen by Reuters, Facebook will detail the company's efforts to better protect children and teens online, including defaulting users under the age of 16 to private accounts when they join Instagram. Thousands of migrants, meanwhile, are returning to Haiti from that encampment site back in Texas, many back for the first time in years. NBC News correspondent Jacob Sobroff has the latest. This plane, the first of four to arrive in Port-au-Prince carrying Haitian migrants. The busiest day yet for the Biden administration, expelling thousands of Haitians gathered under that bridge in Del Rio, Texas. Once they arrive at this airport, many of them are confused. Many of them are asking why they are here in the first place. Their next stop, this processing center run by the United Nations, which expects as many as 6,000 Haitians to have been returned since September 19th. On this bus right here are migrants who were just taken off of the plane, and they're basically going to be put through a United Nations repatriation program right now. They're going to get instructions on what to do once they arrive here in Haiti. One family returned today told us they'll try again to leave the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere. One they and many of the migrants haven't lived in for years. We want to live somewhere we can have a better life. The UN's chief mission for migration issues here says it's dangerous for returning migrants. My main concern is that a lot of people, thousands of people, will be in areas that are controlled by the gangs, that are uh, affected by the earthquake or in other difficult situations. And the more come here, the more difficult the situation will be. Our thanks to Jacob Sobra for that. Jacob will be live on Morning Joe from Haiti in just a little while. Earlier in this show, we asked, why are you awake? One viewer is up way too early because 
I have an adorably pint-sized dictator, i.e. newborn, who decided now would be a great time for a snack. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Andrea says, this little one was ready to play earlier this morning, and that is really adorable. Wow. And Anita is up watching a few new snowflakes begin to come down in cozy Fairbanks, Alaska. Look, I'm, as you know, pretty anti-summer these days. Fall is here. It's wonderful. Not quite sure I'm ready for snow and winter just yet, though. Lee emails, I've been up all night. My daughter is getting married on Saturday, Are we? and we are into crunch time. Lee, congratulations and good luck. Up next, a look at the Axios One Big Thing. And coming up on Morning Joe, we'll hear from two of the lawmakers who questioned top U.S. military officials on Capitol Hill this week, Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin and Senator Tim Kaine. Plus, Congresswoman Elon Omar will join the conversation to discuss where progressives stand in Democrats' push to pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Morning Joe, just minutes away. Don't go anywhere. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? Evangelical pastor and director of Vote Common Good, Doug Paget, on the rise of Christian nationalism and what's at stake in this year's election. We lack a story in this country about what our politics are supposed to achieve. And when we suggest to them that the common good can be your voting identity, rather than being Republican or being a Democrat or being fiscally this or that, big government or small government, but you care about the common good, people are like, oh yeah, that that I actually care about. That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe.